this morning as we go through uh, Luke chapter 20, uh, we'll be looking at verses 19 through 44. It's a large chunk of scripture. As you see in your bulletin, it goes one full page and actually on to the next as well. Uh, we've got three separate stories here that are intertwined in Jesus' life. A couple of questions that he has asked, and then a question that he asks in response. And so we're going to kind of take these one by one, and we're going to look at them as uh, we go through the passage. So I'm not going to read the entire passage for us in one chunk. We're just going to kind of take it bit by bit. But uh, before I do... Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention is that in a couple of weeks, on the 31st, uh, we're going to have a guest preacher. Uh, his name is Dan Anderson. Uh, he is a teaching elder in our um, presbytery who is planting a church in Little Rock, something that the PCA has not done in, let's see, how old is Trinity? Uh, 31 years. There you go. Um, he is on the ground there in Little Rock. Uh, he has uh, started gathering up uh, kind of a core group, I guess you could say, uh, doing some evangelism there in Little Rock, and um, he is in kind of the Midtown Heights area, if you're familiar with that part uh, of Little Rock. He and his wife, Kimberly, have been living there for about a year and a half now, uh, just getting to know people in the area. Uh, they've got two kids. Uh, one of them was just born a couple of months ago. Um, and uh, he is excited about what God is doing in Little Rock itself. And uh, this is a plant from our presbytery, um, and uh, we're excited about what is happening here in Little Rock. So uh, I know that we have talked as a church about what it would look like for us to plant a church. Um, I think what it looks like for us right now to plant a church is to start getting behind Dan Anderson uh, and what he's doing in Little Rock. Uh, to throw our support behind him, um, support him in any way that we can, uh, starting with prayer. Uh, so we need to be praying for the work that he is doing there and uh, what God is doing uh, in our presbytery, uh, particularly in Little Rock. It is uh, extremely exciting. Uh, so Dan is a very passionate individual. Uh, as you'll see when he comes here on the 31st, he's going to be preaching for us. And uh, we'll be able to spend some time with Dan and get to know him a little bit then I'm very excited about that. Um, but as we come to Luke 20 this morning, we pick up in verse 19. And I'm going to read verses uh, 19 through 20 for us, kind of as a way of introduction. So this is Luke 20, verses 19 through 20. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, and they feared the people. If you remember the parable that he has just told, it is the parable of the wicked tenants. That this man plants a vineyard, he lends it out to tenants, he goes away and he sends his servants uh, to get fruit from the vineyard. But instead of giving fruit over to the servants, they beat the servants and they kick them out. Finally, the, the, tenant, uh, the, the owner sends his son and instead of simply beating him, they kill him because he is the heir. And they know very pointedly that Jesus is talking to them. And they are indignant. But they didn't do anything because of fear. And we talked about that last week, this fear that they have. And they feared the people. So picking up in verse 20, 
So they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So this week we're seeing more of the same that we witnessed last week as we read through uh, 1 through 18 of chapter 20. Jesus just finished this parable. He is obviously referring to the religious leaders. They are picking up on that. They want to lay hands on him. In essence, they want to kill him. And they want to kill him now. They want this Jesus done with. And they admit, or uh, Scripture admits to us, that they are afraid of the people. Why are they so afraid of these people? Jesus is so loved and he is so highly thought of by these people because of all these miracles that he is performing. These amazing signs and wonders that he is doing, this teaching that he is, um, that he is speaking to them because he has one who has authority. And they haven't heard anything like this before. If the religious leaders tried to do something to him in the middle of these crowds, there would be a riot. So they are fearful of the people. And as we talked about last week, the religious leaders also have a lot to fear when it comes to Jesus himself. These religious leaders are self-centered. They are narcissistic. They are afraid of losing their power and authority that they have over the people. So they're afraid of Jesus. But we know that Jesus is the one who drives out all fear. And we talked about that last week. He's the one who washes away all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our fear. And yet these religious leaders could not see it. They were blind to this fact. So they begin to change their tactics. Instead of an overt operation where they go straight at Jesus, they now are responding with a covert operation. They're sending in spies, seeing if other people can trick him into saying something inflammatory. They send in these spies to infiltrate the ranks. And these are, this is the tactic of these spies. What they're doing is pretending to be sincere, to catch him in something that he is saying so that they can hand him over to the authorities. This is their tactic. So why are these religious leaders so hostile? Obviously, Jesus is a man who has to be reckoned with. The things that Jesus is saying have to be dealt with. Either his authority comes from God, and he is a prophet, or gasp. Maybe he is even the one, as he has said. Or his authority is from a man-made source. If his authority did come from God, what could they do? They have to submit to him. But if authority doesn't come from God, and this is what they were hedging their bets on, then he would eventually be able to be trapped, and they would uh, trap him in his words. Either way, they're looking to discredit him and get rid of him. But one thing they could not do is that they couldn't simply leave him alone. He had to be reckoned with. You know, I think this is a lot different from today. A lot different. Because a lot of people would approach Jesus today and have an encounter with Christ and believe that we can simply dismiss him 
as, oh, a good guy who said good things. The religious leaders realized that he was not just a good guy who said good things, that he, his words needed to be dealt with, either discredited or followed. But they did not want to believe and could not believe that this rabbi from Galilee could possibly be the one. So they send in their spies. And rather than approaching Jesus rightly, they're approaching him in all the wrong ways. And what we'll see this morning is that the religious leaders approach Jesus with flattery, with duplicity, with arrogant smugness. But the only proper way to approach Jesus is humbly as our Lord. So as these spies come in, let's pick up our reading again in verse 21, and let's read through verse 26. Verses 21 through 26. So they asked him, and they as the spies, the spies asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but, and truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Just like last week when we realized that the question that they're asking isn't necessarily the point, uh, we see the same thing this morning. They don't necessarily want the truth, they want to trap. And so that's why they pose this question. And they approach Jesus with such flattery, as you can notice uh, kind of how I read uh, their words. Uh, It's with insincerity. They're buttering Jesus up. Uh, to ask this question. They say, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. Show no partiality and truly teach the way of God. You know, flattery by its very definition is insincere. It is excessive. They don't mean at all what they say. Uh, Flattery is self-centered. It is selfish. A person who uses flattery compliments another person so that they can get something in return. It's not to just sincerely compliment the other. It has nothing to do with the other person and everything to do with self. It's actually, flattery is actually the opposite of gossip when you think about it. Gossip is saying something behind someone's back that you would never actually say to their face. But flattery is the opposite. It's saying something to someone's face that you would never actually say behind their back. The fair, uh, these religious leaders, as they come to Jesus, they say, truly you teach the words of God. But behind his back, they're wanting to kill him because they don't believe that for a minute. So they're using this flattery to try and trap him. So they ask the question, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? This is a loaded, loaded question. Um, If he says yes, then he's a Roman sympathizer. He's like a tax collector. And the people despise Roman sympathizers, despise the tax collectors. 
If he says no, then he's an insurrectionist. He's like a zealot. And they have an opportunity now to hand him over to the Romans, and he could be killed for that. But Jesus shows this third way that he typically does. And what he does is amazing. So he asks for a coin. He asks whose image is on it, and it's Caesar's. So he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God's. And they're speechless. What can they say to that? They marvel at what he says, and they go away uh, completely silent. Jesus is incredible. And it's important for us to, to understand what he is saying here, because he's making actually a very uh, important political statement uh, that actually Paul picks up later on in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. So should we pay taxes to Caesar? Um, in Romans 13, 1, we read that there is no authority except from God. Jesus is affirming that we should submit ourselves to the governing authorities. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But we need to give to God what is God's. Caesar may have his image on our coins, but as we were talking about with the children this morning, God has his image on us, on our very lives. As I read in Genesis 1.26, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So here's our struggle, and I believe that we struggle mightily with this in contemporary Christianity, uh, that we have this dual citizenship. Yes, we are citizens of the United States of America. We carry that currency. That is what we pay with. We are proud of our heritage. We live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. We believe it's the greatest country in the world, but we are citizens of God's kingdom. And I think that we struggle with blurring the lines between these two kingdoms. Often we equate the United States with the kingdom of God, much like Israel in the Old Testament, and that is not the case. It's dangerous to think of the United States as a country, as God's chosen people. Like all other great empires and nations, there will come a time when the United States will fall. It's hard for us to conceptualize that. But there will probably be a time in history when students will open up their history books and read about the rise and the fall of the United States of America, much like we read about the rise and the fall of the Roman Empire. We were talking this Thursday morning in our uh, men's Bible study group, and uh, we were talking about the fact maybe even the best thing for our country uh, maybe the best thing for Christianity in our country, excuse me, is for our nation to fall, to draw us back to the Lord. Those who believe in Christ are members of a kingdom that will never perish, spoil, or fade. It is an eternal kingdom with Jesus Christ as our King. Yes, we are citizens of the United States. More importantly, first and foremost, we are citizens of God's kingdom. So the question for us to consider is, where does our citizenship lie? Would you call yourself a Christian American or an American Christian? Because there's a big difference there. 
where is our priority? In the heavenly kingdom or in our earthly uh, citizenship? We know that God has placed his image on our lives, so let us live as citizens in his kingdom. So now that the spies are silenced, that they have marveled at these words of Jesus, and they're going away from Jesus with their tail between their legs, their heads down, um, another group of, of people come up. It's the Sadducees, and they want to crack at Jesus. They push through the crowd, and you can get the sense of, get out of our way. It's our turn. Let us show you how it's done. We're going to take him down. And let's pick up our reading here in verse 27, and we'll read through verse 40. So 27 through 40. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny there is a resurrection. So this is a group of religious leaders who, unlike the Pharisees uh, who believed in the resurrection, denied the fact that there is a bodily resurrection. They asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will this woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection." But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. So the Sadducees come to him, and they're laying a theological trap for him. They're bringing him into Scripture, into the words of Moses. And these Sadducees are ones that do not believe in the resurrection. They believe that some parts of Scripture were true and worth keeping, and some parts were worth discrediting and throwing out. And one of the things that they discredited was the resurrection. They wanted to trap Jesus by presenting him with an absolutely absurd scenario, something that would never happen. Uh, and so here's the situation. There's a family of seven brothers. The oldest one marries a wife, and after they get married, he dies. They have no children. And this happens with each um, a subsequent brother. They get married and die, leaving no children. And at the end, finally, this woman dies. How tragic is this story? Uh, we've been reading some, some shortened kids' versions of Shakespeare to our children recently, and he is the king of tragedy. Uh, it seems like in his tragic stories, it seems like every character dies. 
Shakespeare's got nothing on this. Um, imagine the grief of this woman if this were an actual scenario. Um, and according to law, as we see in the Old Testament, it's the duty of the brother to marry his brother's widow. We see this at various times in the Old Testament. We see this in the story of Ruth. Uh, it wasn't a, a brother, um, but it was a, a close relative. So the scenario that they present is an absurd one, and they hope that this absurdity will trap Jesus in his interpretation of Scripture. So they pose the question, in the resurrection, and you can hear them kind of snickering behind their, their you know, hands, like, in the resurrection, like that will ever happen, uh, whose wife will she be? So how can he answer this question? How can he answer it? He can't say that she's going to be the husband of all of them. That's something like an eternal incest, having seven husbands. That cannot possibly be the case. Uh, is she husband to just one of them in the resurrection? Well, if that's the case, how do you choose which one she's going to be husband to? Um, or is it, can he answer that there's no resurrection? And this is the answer that they were hoping would come out of this scenario. Something like this is so absurd that there can't possibly be a resurrection. They think they have Jesus trapped, but they cannot be more wrong. Jesus' answer is, the resurrection is real. It is going to happen. But what won't happen is marriage in resurrection. You won't have to worry about your little absurd scenario as it's presented because it's impossible in the resurrection, there's no marrying or given in marriage. It won't matter whose wife she was in this life, because in the life to come, marriage will not be. And Jesus turns to Scripture to prove the fact that God is the God of the living and not the dead. He quotes from Exodus 3, verse 15, where we read, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now, in our uh, ladies' Bible study, we've been learning how to study the Bible. And we we're looking at an inductive Bible study, how uh, we first do observation and then we do interpretation and application. And so we've been looking deeply into a particular passage. Um, if this, Genesis 3 verse 15, was one of the passages we were looking at, I don't know if I would make the same interpretation as Jesus does here. His is very unique. Um, usually when I look at this passage, I think, uh, okay, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is uh, an eternal God. He is a covenant-keeping God. He is the God of our forefathers. He is the same. But what Jesus is drawing out here is so deep and so beautiful. Um, the way that Jesus, the way that God can interpret this passage is that God is not only, or God is, yes, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which means that he is the God of the living. That means that he is, not he was the God, but he is. It's incredible. And once again, Jesus silences his questioners. Uh, as Luke says, they dare not ask him any more questions. These Sadducees, they approach Jesus in their arrogance, their smugness, thinking that they are better than he is, smarter than he is. But as they walk away from Jesus, 
they are humbled and they're silent. I think that the scribe's reaction here is priceless. Uh, Usually the scribes and the Sadducees didn't always agree on things. And so we hear them respond to Jesus and they say, yeah, Jesus, that's right. You stick it to the Sadducees. Um, They are loving it. They say, teacher, you have spoken well. With no more questions to answer from the crowd, Jesus concludes by asking a question of his own. Let's uh, read our last uh, four verses here, starting at verse 41. But Jesus said to them, How can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he a son? He doesn't even wait for the response here, as you notice. He moves on, and we'll pick up in verse 45 next week. Uh, He doesn't even wait for a response. Um, He's not asking a rhetorical question because the answer isn't immediately obvious. He's asking this question to get them to think about the fact of who he is. They know that he is the son of David, that he has come uh, down in the line of David. And so he asks this question, how can someone who is the son of David, coming after David, still be David's Lord? According to his human nature, Jesus is a descendant. We read it in Matthew and in Luke from his genealogy. But he is also the Lord of David. How can he be son and Lord? If we look at our catechism, shorter catechism, verse, uh, question and answer 21, The question is, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? And the answer is, the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was, and continueth to be God and man, in two distinct natures, in one person, forever. So Jesus is both God and man, forever. This is how Jesus can be both the descendant of David and yet our Lord and David's Lord. And because David calls him Lord, we should call him Lord as well. So the question for us that we are being posed with at the end of this passage is this. How are we approaching Christ? Are we approaching Christ like the spies that were sent out by the religious leaders Are we approaching Christ like these Sadducees, or are we approaching Christ like David did, even in the Old Testament, as Lord? The spies try to butter Jesus up with flattery, with selfish intentions, telling him what they thought he wanted to hear so that they would get their own way. Do we approach Jesus selfishly, seeking out what we want from him, saying things to his face or appearing one way in public that is not our own private reality in our hearts? Do we butter him up in prayer, trying to impress him with how good we are? And because we are good, we expect Jesus to reward us in return. And when he doesn't, we get angry and frustrated, saying things like, look at all I have done. 
and this is what I get in return? Or do we approach Jesus as the Sadducees did with a smug arrogance? Do we believe that we think we know what is best? Do we believe that we know better than God? Or are we approaching Jesus as David did, as his Lord? When we approach Jesus as our Lord, we approach him humbly. We approach him selflessly, not with selfish flattery. We approach him willing to submit to him, not to try to trap him and destroy him. We approach him as he is, the Lord of Lords. And Jesus is our Lord. He is not a harsh Lord. Instead, He is a loving Lord. He was willing to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He was willing to endure the shame of the cross as our Lord, willing to endure the wrath of God, willing to endure death itself so that we might have life. So let us come together to the Lord, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us come as we ought, submitting ourselves to Him, confessing our sins to Him. Let us pray. Our most gracious God and our Father, We come to you by the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We admit that we too often come as the spies and as the Sadducees. We come to you selfishly, with flattery, trying to get our own way, rather than submitting to you as our Lord. Father, I pray that you would humble us, and we understand what that means, because humbling is never easy. It is always hard, because it is a a surrender of ourselves to you. Father, I pray that we would approach you as David did, not as a perfect person, for we know he was not, but he came and he confessed his sins to you. And he called you his Lord. And I pray that we would confess our sins to you as well. Humbly submitting ourselves to you, our Lord and Savior. Resting upon you alone for salvation. We pray these things in your most precious and holy name. Amen.